This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. Standing by in the award-winning WLS newsroom, she covers the City Hall for us, Mallory Vorbroker. Did this actually get introduced today, Mallory? It was introduced and sent to committee. Where it's going to die, I assume? But it is a welcomed conversation that the mayor is for, so it might not die, but it's a long shot. Did the alderman or the mayor or anybody explain where the city, which are woefully short in the city, in the county, in the state, of money, where they're going to come up with the $4 billion to purchase the bears if, in fact, the McCaskies even sell? No, uh, (laughs) there were no numbers talked about. The financial aspect yet to be determined, but a feasibility study, sure, why not? Would the uh, Progressive Caucus of the City Council just recommending uh, confiscating the bears from the McCaskies, perhaps? <laughs> I think everyone... We'll just I would, take it. Right, a civic we'll just take asset. it. Yeah, we'll just take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested to see where this comes out, especially because um, in the resolution notes, they said it might not even be legally... I would say, I don't think it's legal. I'm pretty sure it's not. It's one thing, eminent domain, which we can argue about as much as you want on this program. We have uh, a number of times. If they're coming to take your property to build, I don't know, a bridge or or something that is demonstrably important for the community, that's one thing. But it's, I'll use the uh, words of uh, a guest we're going to have on next hour. Chicago-based sports marketing expert Mark uh, Gannis branded the proposal a ludicrous idea. One of our previous guests, the veteran sports writer and attorney Lester Munson, said it's implausible. And even Civic Federation President Lawrence Massal was quoted as saying, uh, I don't know where the city of Chicago would come up with a $4 billion that is the expected market value. So is this nothing more than a press release? I would say that is safe now to say. I am also curious. I don't know a lot about what the Green Bay Packers structure is, but that's what they're kind of structuring possibly off of to talk about well that was grandfathered in the other problem is that the nfl has approval on uh franchise owners you know franchisees uh of any of their properties which last time i checked the chicago bears uh, still is so let's just say this is just a i don't know just a way to insert yourself into the news cycle i suppose now i saw this from our friend uh, uh patch.com this morning who's the great writer for patch that we love so much Oh, we love them all. Kelly Bauer, Mina Bloom, Justin Lawrence. Mark Conkle. Mark Conkle. Oh, you mean Patch. Yes, Conkle. Yes, Patch. Yes. Ma- Sorry. Mark Conkle. He wrote this this morning, and it caught my eye. My dog, Willie Nelson Algren, has vowed to poop on the lawn of any alder person who votes against an ordinance that would prevent city inspectors for ridiculously ticketing tavern owners for allowing pups to belly up to the bar. Did this hit the floor today? That was passed, and I would like to say I was naming reporters from Block Club Chicago because that's where I got my story, but that was passed. Alderman Riley introduced it, and now pups are allowed in pubs. Yeah, it seems like uh, there was a bit of a double negative there with Mark Conkle's sentence, but so you can bring your dogs into taverns in the city of Chicago. Uh, This is introduced or passed? Passed? Passed. Okay. Uh, so you can bring your dogs into taverns, but I assume that restaurants can still say uh, no. Correct. It is foodstuffs as defined in the city code, and this narrows the ban allowing taverns that do not serve food but 
do serve garnishes to have dogs. Like pig snuckles. Sure, nuts, you know, things of that nature. Beef jerky, sure. <laughs> so as if we already don't have enough fights in taverns in the city of Chicago, now we're going to let people bring their dogs in. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that'll be good. Yes. Actually, I, I would love to be able to bring my dogs into uh, the Billy Goat some night after the show. That would be fun. Your I mean, dogs fun. are beautiful. They are beautiful dogs. They yep. are. The three amigos, and uh, uh, they are beautiful dogs. They they are not uh, They are not shy. And the other problem is they are not inexpensive, these dogs, but they're worth every every penny. Well, I, I admire uh, Riley for introducing that and passing it, so that is officially law. We can bring dogs into taverns. There's a mayor to sign off on this. This is official. It's gotten its approval. Good. Glad to hear. Well, thank you, Mallory. Are you enjoying your time at the City Hall? Yes, it has been busy, busy, busy. Yeah, well, you, you do a great job. We enjoy your reports and love having you on when we can. Thank you. I love being with you, John. Take care. You too. You know, you got to be careful when you let your dogs drink anything other than water. Hey, hey, get out of there. Stop. No. Oh, don't worry about it, Clark. A little tree water ain't going to hurt him. Before we left, he drank a half a quart of Penn's oil. Boy, when he lifted his leg the next morning. <laughs> so we may be coming to the end of the pandemic, according to Dr. Fauci. It all comes down to, of course, getting the boosters, letting the kids get their vaccination. I think an important thing is to prevent people from getting symptomatic disease. And I think there are plenty of children, adolescents and otherwise, who clearly get infected, get symptomatic disease, and some even go on to long COVID. Well, that's why you should think about having your kids vaccinated. What's the outlook for the winter? Generally, when the temperature drops, and it's going to be 20 to 30 degrees cooler tomorrow than it was today, this is unseasonable as this front comes through, but as the temperature drops, the cases go up, and the corresponding problems with hospitalizations and um, people on ventilators and finally people who die. So we're going to call on the expertise of Dr. June McCoy again, professor of uh, medical education at the Feinberg School Northwestern, what would it take, what would it look like for COVID to go from being a pandemic to an endemic? We'll start there with a good doctor who joins us next. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. As the temperature drops, the numbers tick up. We know that. This will be our third COVID winter. First winter where much of the world has all the tools it needs to soften the worst impacts of even the fresh wave of cases. Uh, way up in Germany, way up in the Netherlands, way up in Belgium. But here, it's possible that COVID might become endemic in some uh, areas in the coming months. Uh, that's essentially a disease that's uh, present and unshakable. It's going to be here, but it's totally manageable. Thanks to mandates, a drop in hesitancy, uh, the decision by the FDA to authorize boosters, also uh, authorize first doses for kids, the vaccination rate has climbed to a healthy 1.2 million doses a day. 59% of Americans are fully vaccinated at this point. We increase by about a point every two weeks. Now, it might seem because of a very, very loud minority that we have an insurmountable anti-vax problem. We don't. We don't. And here in Illinois, uh, specifically, 89% of oldies, adults 65 and older, have received at least their first dose. 84% of the oldies here in Illinois are fully vaccinated, so that's good news. Fauci was out today in D.C. in a briefing talking about Texas specifically, but these numbers hold 
almost nationwide, that if the if you're not vaccinated, if you're one of the unvaxxed, for whatever reason, guess what? The propensity for going to the hospital way, way, way up. Unvaccinated people were 13 times more likely to become infected than fully vaccinated. And unvaccinated people were 20 times more likely to die than fully vaccinated people. So really the setup is you have a much higher chance 13 times to go to the hospital and then to the morgue. Dr. June McCoy is here, professor of medical education. Boy, we are woefully short of that in this nation. She's at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern, returning guest. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. How do you feel right now, optimistic about the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, and the upper Midwest in general? I I am optimistic, uh, despite the fact that we have a lot of anti-vaxxers out there, and for all kinds of reasons. They're, They're good people. But sometimes misinformed, I feel optimistic. Uh, you know, Chicago's cases are holding steady. I, I think we're, what, at 2,974 cases, new confirmed cases in Chicago, but we're not having high numbers of deaths. And so that's a good thing. And in, intensive care units are not filling up. Um, so that's also another good thing. Yeah. Certainly it is for those of us who are vaccinated and may need to go to the hospital. I'm glad the beds aren't all gone. Now, with the anti-vaxxers, at what point do they become moot? We're at 59% right now. How much higher do we have to go before it doesn't matter the percentage of the population that refuse to get vaccinated? You know, we need to get up close to 70%. You, you, from the, the start of the pandemic, we talked about the importance of herd immunity, the so-called immunity that we get when we've got a nice chunk of the population immunized or um, certainly um, who are not going to be actually passing on the virus that much. And so the virus generally really has nowhere to go. It's kind of locked in and it, and it, it peters out. We need to get up to into almost close to 70% to see that, um, start to feel comfortable that the, anti, the ones who are not getting vaccinated won't really impact the population to a significant extent. Uh, um, in a significant way that might lead to death for people. So we're not there yet. Right. We're, we're hanging about 59, 60%. My sister and a good buddy of mine, both hail from Michigan, both fully vaccinated. I don't think either had their booster shot yet, but both came down with cases, two breakout cases. In my sister's case, she said it was the most miserable two weeks of her life. How concerning is it to you, uh, Dr. June McCoy from Northwestern, that fully vaccinated people seem to be coming down with the certain variant of coronavirus? Uh, to be, um, to be uh, clear, I am not, I know, I, I hear what happened with your sister, and I understand how miserable she might have been and must have been, but I'm not that concerned. And, and this is because we knew that um, with more uh, data coming out that we were seeing a drop after a period of time in immunity. We knew that, and that's why we have the booster so we know that we can get people back over the hump. Uh, it's, it's regrettable that in the initial phase, we told people get fully vaccinated, we think you'll be fine. But I don't think ever did researchers say that we knew how long immunity would last. So in a nutshell, I'm not that concerned because we know this vaccine, these vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson Johnson really are very effective and effective against the bad strain, the Delta variant, the very contagious strain, that Delta variant out there. And so we know that we've got some armamentarian in, in, our, in our back pocket, that we can do something, and hence the issue of the booster. 
So um, your sister regrettably got a breakthrough infection, but despite the fact that she was miserable, thank God she got better. It didn't take her life. So the vaccines are preventing us from getting very, very sick, preventing hospitalizations in general wards and the intensive care unit. And we now have a booster that we hope will get people back up to that 90% protection so that we won't see the breakthrough uh, through what we expect is going to be a, a very interesting winter with the cold weather coming on, the flu being something out there still not so bad as in the past few years. Uh, we don't know what that holds, but we at least we've got something to give to patients and to individuals out there to keep them healthy. So your sister actually um, fared better than she would have had she not been vaccinated. Absolutely, and she, you know, she's a very smart person, and she agrees very with that. Smart. She also decided to get, um, based on her physician's uh, recommendation, she also went to the hospital and got an infusion. I mean, she was that sick that the uh, her physician, a GP, said, you better get an infusion just to make sure. And she basically sat up for two weeks. She didn't want to lay down because she wanted to keep that kind of, uh, you know, not from forming in her lungs becoming a respiratory issue. She was trying to make sure that she kept her lungs well, you know, aerated as mm-hmm. the air moving through it well. Your sister is smart. So she got monoclonal antibodies. Uh, she, also, she, also, she also decided to go to the U of M uh, Michigan State football game and sit there with seventy five thousand people. So that we think that's where she picked it up. But we sh- we shall see. But she wore a mask, right? Well, yeah. I, uh, I saw some pictures taken at the game where she was not wearing a mask. So ah, maybe she's she not as smart as I think. Dog, maybe, yeah. and have a yeah. and then yeah. you've got to take the mask off. And and that's you never know when someone who has the virus um, coughs or talks and that the particles hang in the air. And then while you're eating your hot dog and so on that you're getting it. Um, that's unfortunate, but your sister's smart. I wish many of your viewers will be like her. At least she got fully vaccinated. She took a risk, and, you know, uh, she, she must be a huge Michigan fan, and Michigan I, I understand that, but yeah. she survived it. The booster, you know, um, you might have heard, I don't know if you're aware that the FDA is thinking about um, actually having everyone get that booster, not just people who have, you know, immune problems, those with diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and uh, cancer patients, and of course the elderly over 65. But the what we're hearing um, coming out of the FDA is that they're likely going to recommend that everyone 18 years and older get that booster. Well, and that's, that's similar to flu endemic so it's going to be here it's going to have to be a management issue for all of us so i expect that i'll have to get some sort of covid vaccination if not every year maybe every couple years for sure as we become endemic as opposed to a pandemic and by the way i believe i'm scheduled i'll check but i'm i'm pretty sure i'm getting my booster shot tomorrow because i'm high risk so i'm going to get my booster shot tomorrow that's wonderful to hear that you're going to get your booster uh i know that there's some uh uh country uh, you know, controversy around the fact that we'll be giving, the FDA might be okaying boosters for everybody 18 years and older. And some people are saying, why why go there? Why not just focus on the ones who haven't gotten their vaccines? But I actually am going to go on the side of the FDA. If indeed they go ahead and um, authorize boosters, the CDC has to weigh in on that, of course, before we can get it to people. But I would go with them because I agree with you. This is becoming like, the annual flu vaccine that we get, that we're going to have a waning of our, of our immunity, 
our bodies will fight, but it, it, it loses some of its fighting power, and that we need to get a little booster to get us back up there. So I think, I'm hoping, and as, you know, as someone who studied epidemiology uh, at the University of Illinois, I'm hoping that we don't see this become endemic, but I do believe it's going to be kind of hanging around for years and years to come, but not endemic to any great extent at all. Um, I do believe that enough people are moving towards vaccination that we won't see this virus just never going away. I think it will it will eventually go away. I hope so. I think uh, our grandchildren and will remember this. They'll hear the history of the coronavirus and ask grandmother or grandfather, what was that all about? Uh, you know, I don't yeah. think they'll, they'll, they'll have a runny nose and their families think, oh, you've got COVID. I think they'll just say you've got the flu. That's how I'm epitomizing it's going to happen going forward. Well, I hope you're right. Dr. McCoy, thank you for your time. By the way, are you familiar with Star Trek? I am. Okay. I am called Bones at times. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. <laughs> All right, Dr. June McCoy, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Tell our friends over at the Feinberg School at Northwestern we say hello. I will do that. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All the for- best. All the best to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. The president recently said that addressing inflation is a top priority for him, and his administration has repeatedly alluded to the possibility of some sort of action to push gasoline prices down specifically. Today he sent some sort of letter to the FTC to investigate anti-consumer behavior, whatever that means, by oil and gas companies. So let's start there with Patrick DeHaan. He's the head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy, and I believe a returning expert here on the Big 89. Patrick, good afternoon. How are you, sir? Good. Good to be with you. Let me correct myself. Good evening, Patrick. How are you? <laughs> there you go. I guess it just crossed. I mean, it's dark out now. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you come down on this daylight uh, saving time thing? You know what? I'd, I'd, I'd prefer it stay lighter a little longer. It, it, it just feels awful, especially when you get to the, you know, what, December, and you leave work at, at 4.30, and it's completely dark out. Yeah. it's a, don't, don't mess with Mother Nature. Okay, so have you been able to read or do a little analysis on this letter that the president sent to the FTC? Every president does this, don't they? And does it do any good at all? Does it move the needle down at all? Well, you're right. Uh, most presidents in the last, uh, call it 60 years, have done it. Uh, President Biden today on the FTC, uh, President Obama back in 2011 called on the FTC, and President Bush in 2006 called on the FTC to investigate high gas prices. You notice how these investigations only happen when gas prices are high, not like a year ago when prices <laughs> went to 99 cents in Wisconsin. Kind of interesting. Yeah. What do you make of, uh, I, I, get, I hear from a lot of listeners that they say that there's a, a direct uh, corresponding reason that gas prices have gone up so so terribly and that's deals with the president's cancellation of the construction of the keystone pipeline can you weigh in on that i i know a lot of people uh that don't sit here and 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 delve into oil are going to disagree with me but the keystone pipeline was never operational it was never considered vital it was simply to deliver more Canadian crude oil down to the Gulf Coast. Um, actually, Line 3, which is run by Enbridge from Canada to the U.S., recently expanded. But no, the Keystone is not yet relevant. That was something that was, you know, potentially for the future, and that would have helped boost Canadian oil prices simply because more countries would have access to that Canadian crude oil. 
Why doesn't the president uh, drain the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Well, again, uh, we're looking for long-term solutions. The SPR would probably be a short-term solution because it, it merely is uh, uh, storing oil. It is not active oil production, meaning once you release it, um, once the market gobbles it up, the, it's not like it's producing every day, right? This is a kind of like a pool of oil that's been sitting there. So, I mean, that's a possibility. The president could act, but, again, it would be a Band-Aid on a, on a – much bigger problem. This is a global phenomenon. Oil prices aren't just high in the U.S. This is a global issue. So if the president releases crude oil, it would it would you have to think about it on a global scale. It's pretty small in comparison to what global oil consumption is, and that's the problem that it won't do a whole lot for a long period of time. Well, why, why doesn't he lean on the House of Saud or the members of OPEC to bring more oil to market? Well, you know, he's he's called on them uh, via press release diplomacy. He's, he's you know, kind of thrown OPEC under the bus and said, hey, it's your fault. Why don't you produce more? Um, OPEC, uh, OPEC is producing more. It's just taking a long time for them to increase production to a meaningful point. But I think in the months ahead, probably two to three months from now, the increases that OPEC has been making every month since July will probably finally get to the point where they will tip the scales. Uh, that is, supply will finally have caught up to demand, probably, I'm hoping, by January, February. Uh, but, I mean, let's just say OPEC has been increasing production. It's just not as much as, as the president wants to see. There's been some talk of reviving this NOPEC legislation, making it possible for the U.S. to sue the members of OPEC for collusion, but that could boomerang on us quite badly, Right. Oh, absolutely. Just like the president, you know, doing press release diplomacy. I mean, come on. Um, don't issue a press release and throw OPEC under the bus. Why don't you talk to them and, and actually, you know, diplomatically kind of, you know, ask them, uh, you know, tie it to military uh, purchases from Saudi Arabia. Let, let, let's use our heads on this. But like you said, um, you know, if, if you go about it that way, it, it's certainly to backfire. Plus, I would I assume that would have to make its way through congressional approval. Good luck with that in this day and age. Well, and the U.S. has no jurisdiction overseas. The cartel uh, is headquartered in Vienna, but uh, good luck applying U.S. rules to overseas you know, organizations. So basically this has to do with we have, and this is overall with the inflation discussion now, we've saved up a lot of money. There's a shortage of goods for supply train, chain reasoning. And uh, now we want these goods, and yay capitalism, everybody's uh, marking up the prices. Well, you know, and, and that, that's what has to do with a lot of the consumer goods. Now, oil's a little different in that if it wasn't for the first four weeks of the pandemic when Americans stopped driving, and if it wasn't for that shift in behavior, that is what caused oil prices to plummet, which we were all cheerleading early in the pandemic, right? 99-cent gas in Wisconsin prices in Chicago fell under $3.00 some cases under $2 in the suburbs. That's what caused the shift. Oil companies had no choice but to react to the drop because they were all of a sudden losing hemorrhaging money. So they had to let people go. They shut down oil production. You know, if nobody wants iPhones out anymore, Apple doesn't just continue producing millions of them every day. Um, oil companies had to react. And it's that reaction now that is causing oil prices to shoot back up. They made long-term decisions uh, because of, of what happened early in the pandemic, and it's, it's, that, uh, it's that that is now sque uh, squeezing us and causing higher oil prices. Give us uh, your best guess as far as the timetable for when these uh, gas prices drop. 
Well, you know, we, we've seen a little bit of relief here just today. Oil was down $2.5 a barrel to $78. I don't know in the short term that that will stick. But like I had mentioned earlier, I think by the time we get to January, February, so long as it's not a bitterly cold winter and we're all cranking up the thermostats, I think we'll start to see OPEC's oil production increases amounting uh, to enough by January, February of 2022, and that supply will increase and demand uh, will be better matched by that rise in supply, and that will equate to lower oil prices. Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy, thank you for your time and your analysis. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, City Council floor leader, Alderman Cardenas, introduced a resolution today to authorize a feasibility study on whether it is practical and advisable for the city to purchase the Chicago Bears, north of $4 billion, we think, give or take. And the value of the franchise went up 16% last year. We've had a number of people on talking about this uh, subject previously. Civic Federation President Lawrence Massal, he said, yes, I've urged uh, Lori Lightfoot to pull out all the stops to keep the Bears in Chicago. In other words, perhaps a new facility uh, on the south side, the west side, what have you. But he said, I don't know where the city of Chicago would come up with the $4 billion that is expected market value. Veteran sports writer and attorney Lester Munson, also a recent guest on the program, called the city purchase of the Bears implausible to say the least. I'm sure you get a lot of Bear fans to put uh, up money the way Packer fans do, but this is a one-of-a-kind thing under a bizarre Wisconsin law, and I'm not sure it's even legally feasible here. You might need legislation in Springfield. This is from Lester Munson. Now, I also saw a great quote in this piece from our next guest, Chicago-based sports marketing expert Mark Gannis, who just said it's a ludicrous idea. Mark, welcome back to Double Dallas. How are you? I'm doing well, John. Well, go ahead. There's a softball right across the middle of the plate. I mean, how dopey is this? I was talking with Mallory Ford Broker, our city hall reporter, our p- political reporter, earlier today, and I said it's really nothing more than a press release to insert this back into a news cycle, and that's in as much as we're still trying to do something to keep the Bears here. Do you see it as anything else? No, there, you know, other than, than the alderman himself wanting to get, get his name out there and, and talked about. Uh, it, it is, it's, I called it ludicrous, and I was being kind. It is, it is, it is just a a boneheaded, bad, un, un, impossible to get done idea. The NFL rules absolutely unequivocally don't allow anything even resembling or close to anything like this. The McCaskey family has never talked about selling the Bears, and then we're talking about what the city of Chicago raising four billion dollars, it and, and then operating a football team. Uh, I, I saw uh, the, the alderman said, uh, some, took some swipe at the, at the McCaskies for the running of the Bears. Oh, yeah. Really, what, what, what enterprise did he ever take, take over <laughs> that was worth about $40 million when it was passed down that's now worth over $4 billion? I suspect that the McCaskies have actually done quite well in many ways. And, oh, by the way, we were in the Super Bowl not that long ago. It wasn't forever ago. Right. But, uh, but, you know, the, the point being... This is impossible to get done. So why even bring it up? If you want to keep the Bears in Chicago, if that's within the city limits of Chicago, focus on what is needed. That's a new stadium, 
somewhere within the city limits, if that's even feasible or possible uh, to get done. But that's the only possibility. Now, let's also remember something. Arlington Heights isn't Siberia. It's, it's the suburb of Chicago. It's Chicagoland. It's Cook County. So it's not like, you know, the Rams going from St. Louis to L.A. Or, or the Raiders from Oakland to Las Vegas. It's the same market. It'll be mostly the same fans. So it's not like they're leaving or going anywhere. They're staying right here, just not within the city limits. It would be so much more convenient for me as a Chicago Bear fan to get to Arlington Heights as opposed to wrestle with getting down into Soldier Field. As long as you mentioned it, here's Alderman George Cardenas's quote. The city just acquired a casino. We need these assets to stay in the city, and we have to come up with a way to entice the Bears. If they don't want to be here, let's buy them out. I mean, they can't manage this team. They haven't managed this team well in decades. That's what he said of our three and six bears uh, just, uh, I believe, yesterday. So Let me see if I understand this correctly. Uh, a representative of the city of Chicago is complaining that somebody is not managing something well? Did, did I just hear that properly? Well, he has some options for uh, – he, he's going to send some options over for uh, uh, fields to run uh, this upcoming uh, weekend, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, we can all look forward to that. I think, you know, I, I played the clips of uh, Richard J. Daly who said, I'll tell you one thing, they're not going to take the name with them. Lightfoot has kind of echoed the same thing. Every mayor does. But certainly, to your point, Arlingtonites is Chicago, and it is in Cook County, and it's been done before in the NFL. Oh, constantly. You know, you look at how many teams are playing in suburban locations. You look around the league, and it's all over the place. The Washington football team is playing in Maryland. They're not even in Washington, and they're playing in Maryland just by way of example. So this is not – first, the name Chicago Bears is a trademark. It doesn't belong to the city. doesn't belong to – doesn't belong to didn't belong to the Daly family, although I think they operated as if it did. Uh, so it is the uh, I'm, I'm cutting some of the city people on this tonight, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, I'm a longtime resident. It's my it's my effort to vent at, at the government that we have. Uh, and then you look at the the uh, uh, the fact that the team is staying right here. It is staying in Cook County. Why would anybody change the name? Uh, why would anybody even bring up something like that? And you're right, um, uh, Mayor Lightfoot did bring it up, but it was ridiculous for her to bring it up also. Let's deal, with, let's deal in the here and now, let's deal in the reality. If they are serious about trying to keep the Bears within the city limits of Chicago, they need to come up with a location and a development plan for a new stadium that the Bears would control. Mark Gannis is here. In our remaining moments, you are a marketing expert. How would you like to have the gig to introduce the Bears at the new facility in Arlington Heights maybe three, four, five years from now? Well, you know, the Bears are going to hire some really great people. We've also worked on a lot of stadium deals. I know just the marketing just comes out, but we've worked on projects related to more than two-thirds of the teams in the NFL. Uh, so we have some, some knowledge of the league rules and what, where uh, the trends are and what's successful and not. And, you know, the Chicago Bears are arguably the single most popular team in the NFL. They play in the third largest market in the country, and they're the only team there. New York has two teams. Los Angeles has two teams. And the Midwest is, is where football, American-style football, was created and grew up. So the Bears are something very, very special. I think it'll be an, an incredible facility by the time they're done with people clamoring to get in and enjoy it. I've only been there once, but the facility and the surrounding neighborhood in Indianapolis is a great, I think, a, a great sort of 
reference point for how you can change a downtown. Now that this in, their, in Indianapolis case, it's right downtown. Right. But it, they they did such a great job there, and that's you want to stay there for a week when you go to a football game. Well, you know, that's what Governor Edgar, if people remember that far back, that's what he proposed to do in Chicago. The, the, the nickname was McDome. He was going, what he proposed is build a, a, a dome stadium uh, for the Bears that would have Super Bowls and NCAA Final Fours, and that could then be used uh, as, a, as an adjunct to the convention center, to McCormick Place. It was the right idea at the right time, but the politics were bad, because if it goes to the state entity of, of McPeer, city-state entity of McPeer, then you divide the political spoils. If it's on park district land, well, all the political spoils and the jobs and the construction stays with the city of Chicago. What do you think in your gut the Bears will do? Oh, I, this is a very serious plan. Uh, I've, I've known this. I knew about it before it was announced. Um, um, they needed to speak with the NFL about certain things. And it, I, I knew right then and there they were very, very serious. Uh, they've, they've, they've got the capital to do it. Uh, they've seen other teams build their own stadiums uh, and, and do well, and stadiums that cost over a billion dollars, uh, and do well out of it. There's, a, there's a, a, a directional path for them to go. They just follow what some other teams in the league have done, and they will, I think, build a magnificent facility that also will have a lot of ancillary real estate to help offset the development costs. Do they need additional uh, funding, or can they do this on their own based on the, uh, the uh, value of the franchise? Well, the, the idea is, putting aside the value of the franchise, the idea is, can you do this on your own? Uh, the, the kinds of things that you want are the tradition, at least, the traditional governmental uh, activities whenever any business is moving to an area. Infrastructure, uh, zoning, uh, procedural assistance, and perhaps even a, ta- a tax increment financing district of some kind. So those are the, that, that wouldn't take any direct money out of any budget, uh, state, city, or county. Uh, so if they, if they get those things and procedural assistance, the mayor of Arlington Heights has already talked about welcoming them, kind of a different feeling than perhaps what they've received at, 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 in the park district over the last few years. Uh, and so they can do it. Uh, the league, the NFL will help finance it as well. Um, and uh, the, the revenues that they'll be able to generate in this market, uh, you know, look at what just happened in, in L.A. Uh, the, the naming mm-hmm. rights deal for, these, for what was Staples Center yeah. Yeah. just went for $700 million. Yeah, what is it, Bitcoin or not Bitcoin? It's uh, Cybercoin.com. Crypto.com. Crypto.com, yeah. Uh, but then you have SoFi, which is uh, the, the, the financial institution, uh, $600 million for for the Rams and Chargers Stadium. Point being... There are opportunities out there that are very significant, and the Bears have seen this happen in the NFL and with other leagues uh, around the country. They're not doing this blind. They're being very smart about it. They're being deliberate. And when, the, when that great piece of dirt came available, they did not hesitate. They went for it. They, 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 they went, to use a, a different sports metaphor, they went strong to the hoop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the $80 million that they're going to have to eat with the park district, that's chump change. In the context, when they did the deal 25 years ago, perhaps it wouldn't have been considered chump change. Now, 25 years later, with the value of the teams and the revenues that can be generated out of these new buildings, I'll never say $80 million is chump change, but it certainly is not enough to dissuade them going forward. Not a deal breaker. Correct. Mark, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you'll uh, come back. My pleasure. Anytime. Mark Gannis, Chicago. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS.
Six minutes after six o'clock on this Wednesday evening. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to have Mike Emanuel with us, Fox News's chief Washington correspondent. Well, Mike, as I just mentioned to my listeners, 16 days until a government shutdown, 28 days until the Treasury Department says the debt limit needs to be lifted, three or four days until Joe Biden makes news about the next chair of the Federal Reserve, 45 days until 2022, 356 days until Election Day 2022, and 13 months to go in this Congress. Based on what I saw today on the floor of the House, I don't think we've hit the bottom yet. Do you? Nice job with the numbers, John. Very impressive. Uh, no, I do not. Uh, there are no signs of people uh, joining hands and singing Kumbaya and feeling better about serving with one another. Uh, things feel about as polarized as they possibly can be, and, and uh, we may not have hit rock bottom just yet. So uh, Paul Gosar, the Republican out of Arizona who put out that meme, depicting the assassination of AOC and the near assassination of the president. He's been stripped of two committee uh, memberships, correct? Yeah, so it was on the House floor, and there was lots of speechifying on both sides, and uh, bottom line, uh, Democrats were unified against Gosar, and a couple of Republicans were on board as well, uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, to name, name a couple. Um, and, yeah, bottom line, um, he got... He got smacked down pretty well in front of all of his colleagues and in front of the country on, on Capitol Hill. I watched him. I watched, of course, uh, Kevin McCarthy. I saw Nancy Pelosi. I saw the leaders. I was actually quite impressed by uh, this congressman out of, let me double check here, Representative Kelly Armstrong, Republican, out of North Dakota. You know, a couple of these guys only had a minute, maybe a minute and 15 seconds. I thought, and I don't know if you saw him, but he made a lot of sense. He said, look, I think what was said in Minnesota uh, by Maxine Waters was stupid. I think yep. what uh, Gosar put out was stupid. But you are breaking the House of Representatives, and believe me, come uh, 2023, this is going to break bad on Democrats. I thought he uh, did a nice job today. I'm going to play it for my listeners after our conversation. Awesome. Yeah, well, look, I think there are folks who do not have much of a sense of humor about anything involving injuring a member of Congress after Steve Scalise was shot on the congressional baseball field and nearly bled out, if not for the fast action of his colleagues. Uh, and then you got Gabby Giffords also from Arizona who was shot at an event back in her district. And so I think there are people who think that, you know, you shouldn't mess around because there are enough people who are deranged out there who might actually take some kind of action. But, yes, freedom of speech obviously is a bedrock principle of this great country um and so you know that is an interesting point um i just think if if gosar thought it was funny uh it fell flat in terms of the video um and you know obviously he's paying a price for it mike emmanuel is here let's move on to more substantial issues the 1.75 trillion social spending package a soft infrastructure plan nancy pelosi says we'll get a vote on thursday or friday that doesn't mean it's going anywhere uh, on the other side of the rotunda. Correct. And in fact, we're seeing uh, evidence that the Biden administration is in a bit of a panic about what the Congressional Budget Office is going to say about the true cost of this package. Because, you know, uh, lawmakers can put a price tag on something and then they can put some pay for gimmicks in it. And then the Congressional Budget Office is like the sober. Uh, you know, nonpartisan group that looks at it and says, this is phony math, that's really not going to pay for it, and this is going to end up costing $4 trillion or whatever number they put on it. Um, 
the bottom line is if they say that this is basically phony math, a lot of hocus pocus, um, that could really jeopardize it in the United States Senate when you've got people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who are worried about inflation, worried about debt, and uh, very anxious to see what the bottom line is on this because the White House has said, oh, it's not going to cost anything 100% paid for, uh, and a lot of folks on Capitol Hill, at least on the Republican side and the moderate Democratic side, are not so sure about that. So we're waiting to see what the, the score is from the Congressional Budget Office, the official referees on Capitol Hill, and we're waiting to see what the impact will be on the vote in the Senate. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen apparently sent some sort of letter saying, okay, forget what we said before, December 3rd, but you, you have to get something done on the debt limit by December 15th or it's uh, end of days. Yeah, and uh, there's evidence that uh, Democratic leadership in the House is taking it very seriously. We've already got John Yarmouth, uh, head of the Budget Committee, already talking to Pelosi about we need to get this ball rolling because we can't play games with it. it obviously, there are a lot of concerns about the state of our economy right now. Uh, all of your listeners going to the gas station right now and going to the grocery store are feeling it. Uh, everybody in this country is at this point. And so you don't want to do anything that could potentially spook the markets and cost people a lot more money uh, in terms of their retirement, their investments, that sort of thing. And so um, I, I think there's evidence that leadership on the Hill is taking this threat or warning quite seriously, and there will be a push for action pretty quickly after Thanksgiving um, you know, when they get back from, from the holiday. Mike Emanuel is here, Fox News Chief Washington Correspondent. Now to really serious items, the intelligence community, your sources, you know, the intelligence community, are they more worried about China moving on, Taiwan, or Russians blasting satellites out of space? Well, they're concerned about the Russians blasting satellites because it was a threat to astronauts in the International Space Station. You know, it was a very kind of reckless action, uh, you know, blowing this, this satellite up, and then there's lots of huge pieces of debris out there, and, you know, you've got astronauts basically taking uh, crash positions or, or, or safety precautions because they're worried that the debris could potentially threaten their lives. And so that's one concern, but I think there's a whole lot of concerns right now in terms of looking at Ukraine, whether Russia's about to go back in there and take more of Ukrainian territory, uh, Taiwan, uh, Chinese, or, you know, and so there's a lot of feeling right now that the Biden administration is going to get tested about how serious they are about foreign policy. And there are a lot of folks who say the way that Afghanistan was handled showed weakness to our adversaries not strength and there are concerns about you know what they may do to test this white house and this administration is vp harris still in good graces at the white house i've got to tell you boy the the there's a lot of drama there behind the scenes there's a lot of people on the vp staff who don't get along well with the president's staff there's a lot of people thinking that you know there's not a lot of team play here um, that there's either you're on team vice president or you're with the president. Um, there's a lot of friction and a lot of drama, and obviously the principals are trying to make it look like they're working well together, but everybody you talk to uh, basically says it's a very dysfunctional situation, uh, and, that, and that a lot of staff working for her are not terribly happy that she's been a tough boss whether she was a prosecutor in California, a United States senator, or now as vice president of the United States. And, 
And it was interesting the other day, I don't know if you're watching the infrastructure signing, the voice of yeah. God, the announcer, <laughs> introduces the union member, and she steps up, the vice president steps up and says, not yet. And, um, I, you know, I don't know the backstory on whether that was just a human error or whether there was a bit of a gotcha, but it was an awkward moment when you have all these palace intrigue stories circulating. Well, you, you do not want awkward moments when you're a vice president. You know, <laughs> say what you Mike Pence, he knew what he was doing to stand there, smile and nod, uh, and just, you know, make sure you don't take that spotlight, make sure you don't step in anything. Right. And, you know, be a good soldier and go to those foreign dignitary funerals and whatever you need, yes, sir, but don't make waves and don't steal the spotlight. Thank you, Mr. Emanuel. I know you'll be in the anchor chair high noon on Sunday, as you uh, have been for uh, recent uh, recent uh, times, and we look forward to watching you Sunday at high noon central. Thank you, John. Happy Thanksgiving to you, your listeners and uh, you, all your loved ones, and uh, all the best, my friend. Thanks for everything. I am taking next week off, so I will talk to you again a couple weeks from today. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Take care. Mike Emanuel from Fox News joining us here. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Our executive producer is Brett Gogol, Stephen Travicanti, our associate producer. He handles the socials. Has not uh, hawked me down for a video in a couple of weeks, huh? Maybe there's been a uh, change in tactics. Tyler Bravo is our technical director. Kim's in the newsroom with an update. Uh, the jury has uh, been dismissed for the day, stopped their deliberations up in Kenosha. They'll start 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. It was a very interesting day up there, and Kim will have an update in just a few minutes. As we discussed with uh, Mike Emanuel, today the House voted to censure uh, Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, Republican, strip him of his committee assignments as well. He was on two. He posted a video that depicted him violently attacking uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez and turning on the president. No doubt you've seen it at this point. If you haven't, it's not worth looking it up. It was uh, juvenile and childish. Did, does it incite violence? Probably not. Anyway, he has now become the 24th member to be censured by the House of Representatives in our history, the first in more than a decade. And yes, Republicans will retaliate immediately January of 2023. Congresswoman Omar, Congresswoman Waters, they will uh, be in danger of being removed from their panels by a GOP majority. Uh, you know, people keep track, right? Karma. Karma train comes around the corner. So I want you to hear some of the stuff that happened on the House floor. Some good, some bad. Um, I'm going to skip Pelosi and McCarthy because that was so predictable. We don't need to hear it again. Then the Democrats moved uh, Ocasio-Cortez to the front of the line, and I've never heard her speak. Uh, I've heard clips. I've never really heard her give an entire speech, and she was only up there for four or five minutes, obviously. But she can bring it way, way more effectively than Nancy Pelosi. We'll start with her, the congresswoman from the Bronx. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong and instead decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation. What is so hard? What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? She was uh, she was referencing Kevin McCarthy because in his opening five minutes, of course, he mentioned 
Afghanistan, the southern border, inflation, gas prices, everything but Gosar and the uh, Gosar. I'm sorry, and the uh, and the animation. So AOC said at one point, she said, "This isn't about me. It's not even about him. This is about the people who will be triggered by him." In other words, this is my phrase, not hers. When you break the stupid, you're responsible for the stupid. When you break the stupid, you own the stupid. And as leaders in this country, when we incite violence with depictions against our colleagues, that trickles down into violence in this country. And that is where we must draw the line independent of party, identity, or belief. She's actually right about that. It's not the great majority of Americans or Republicans or Democrats, but it's the, uh, well, it's the one percenters or less, the lunatics, the maniacs, the morons that you have to worry about. When you trigger them, now you own it. So is it okay at home? Would you allow depictions of violence against women, against colleagues? Would you, would you allow that in your home? Do you think this should happen on a school board? in a city council, in a church. And if it's not acceptable there, why should it be accepted here? So that's uh, AOC. I was going to play some Gomert, Crazy Louie, and I thought, nah. And then uh, Boebert, I thought, nah. I I said, let's go with a reasonable Republican. And this is this uh, Congressman Armstrong that I referenced with Mike Emanuel. He's from South Dakota. He was given a minute 15, and he made good use of it. He makes some great points here. Maybe a little bit more than a minute 15. No, about about a minute 19. And uh, he was visibly nervous. I think he's the only congressman from South Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. And he made some great points because he said, you know what? This is going to break, break bad for Democrats because we're going to win, and we're coming to power. And Pelosi will be long gone by then. But you're still going to be here. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for the blue is going to be good for the red. This is a Republican Congressman Armstrong. What I thought was said in Minneapolis doesn't rise to incitement of violence. I should probably set this up referencing what Maxine Waters had said in Minneapolis. You go out there, you make noise, you accost them in restaurants, you accost them at gas stations. Back to Armstrong. What I thought was said in Minneapolis doesn't rise to incitement of violence. Jury tampering possibly, irresponsible, absolutely. The same thing goes with this post. It was dumb. It was silly. It was stupid. It was mean-spirited. But you know what it's not? It's not incitement of violence. And when we use hyperbole in those words, we cause ourselves problems. Okay, and here's the line of the day out of all the speeches I watched. The U.S. House of Representatives looks more, significantly more like a junior high lunchroom than a legislative body. <laughs> if you're on our clique, you're okay. If not, tough. If we like you, no fines. If we don't, we'll take it out of your paycheck. A member on our side, a member on your side calls for violence, motion to table. A member on our side, stand in the well and answer for your sins. Rules matter, process matters, the institution matters. He's spot on. That is very, very accurate. Again, this is a Republican congressman from South Dakota Armstrong. So you're essentially breaking the process, and that means it's going to break bad on you the blue side of the world. And this will be the fourth member of the minority stripped of their committees by the majority, this Congress. That has never happened before, but it's going to happen again. And that's what I don't understand. I understand completely why, why the majority's leadership is willing to do anything to maintain control over the caucus until the next election. But in the process, you are all negatively and permanently changing the way this body functions forever. 
You are weaponizing the gavel against minority members. Yep. Yep. I agree. So, yes, it was juvenile. I'm talking back to the original uh, the meme, the, uh, the video. It was, it was worse than juvenile. It was childish. It was incendiary. It's, uh, it disrespects your party. It's, uh, it disrespects the office you've been elected to. It's ignorant, and you've proven yourself not to be up to the job. This is my opinion about the Arizona congressman. You should be held accountable for it, but you should not be stripped from your committees because it's not that we think you are going to commit violence. We worry about your followers who might commit violence based on what they think. They think you've told them. One more clip. This is a Democrat congressman from Minnesota. You know how these guys get up and they like to wave around the copy of the Constitution? This is the first time I've seen uh, anybody, House uh, Republican or Democrat, wave around a, a book by George Washington. Yield a minute and 15 seconds uh, to Ethics Committee member from Minnesota, Mr. Phillips. Gentleman's recognized for one minute and 15 seconds. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I, I love freedom. I love George Washington. I keep this book on my desk. George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior. I encourage every colleague in this body, every one of us, keep this on your desk, refer to it. I've heard everything talked about today, inflation, Afghanistan, schools, except the issue we're here for, a censure of a member of Congress who issued a despicable video showing the killing of a fellow member of Congress. Worst of all, most despicable of all, the, the object of the censure said it was to attract a new generation. Think about that. To attract a new generation of Americans. we got to do better, my friends. Come on. And to my friend from Virginia who said, if Democrats had done this, what would we do? Rest assured, my friends, every one of you, we would do the same thing because I will never, ever, ever allow a fellow member of Congress to threaten or distribute a video showing the killing of one of us, let alone another American. With that, I yield back. Gentlelady from Indiana. Back and forth, they want some good, some bad, some just uh, spiraling incoherence. Uh, but uh, I watched it so you didn't have to. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.